Hi, this is James Barris. I hope you find this talk supports you in your practice. If you'd like to support my teaching, you can use the donate button underneath my picture on Dharma Seed to do that. Your support is greatly appreciated. I'd like to um, start off the talk by reading a passage from Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, a wonderful classic, Dharma classic, uh, written by Suzuki Roshi, who founded the San Francisco Zen Center in Green Gulch and Tassajara. <clears throat> in our scriptures, it is said that there are four kinds of horses, excellent ones, good ones, poor ones, and bad ones. The best horse will run slow and fast, right and left, at the driver's will, before it sees the shadow of the whip. The second best will run as well as the first one does, just before the whip reaches its skin. The third will run when it feels pain on its body. The fourth will run after the pain penetrates to the marrow of its bones. You can imagine how difficult it is for the fourth one to learn how to run. When we hear this story, almost all of us want to be the best horse. If it's not possible to be the best one, we want to be the second best. That is, I think, the usual understanding of this story and of practice. You may think that when you sit in meditation, you'll find out whether you're one of the best horses or one of the worst ones. Here, however, there is a misunderstanding of Dharma practice. If you think the aim of practice is to train you to become one of the best horses, you will have a big problem. This is not the right understanding. If, you're, if you practice in the right way, it does not matter whether you are the best horse or the worst one. When you consider the compassion of the Buddha, how do you think the Buddha would feel about the four kinds of horses? He would probably have more compassion for the worst one than for the best one. When you are determined to practice with the great mind of a Buddha, you will find the worst horse is sometimes the most valuable one. In your very imperfections, you will find the basis for your firm, way-seeking mind. Those who can sit perfectly physically usually take more time to obtain the true way of practice, the actual feeling of practice, the marrow of practice. But those who find great difficulties in practicing meditation will find more meaning in it. So I think that sometimes the best horse may be the worst horse, and the worst horse can be the best one. Is that comforting? <laughs> Unless you are one of those people that can sit up straight, say, oh my goodness, am I blowing it here? Um, but for most of us, can ring that description can ring true, how easy it is to judge how we're doing by what standards we hold for ourselves and either, if we're lucky, measure up from time to time and feel, okay, I'm doing, I'm doing okay, but most of the time 
not measuring up to some impossible imagined standards, either internal or external, that we judge ourselves with and uh, end up feeling lousy about practice and about ourselves. This is not necessary. And as Suzuki Roshi says, when you have a true understanding, then you can let go of that comparing mind, that judging mind that doesn't often measure up. In the teachings, this tendency to judge ourselves, to compare against somebody else or some internalized standard is called the conceit of I am. The Pali word is mana, M-A-N-A. The conceit of I am, and it is simply this tendency to solidify a sense of self and compare how we're doing against others. Anybody can relate? (laughs) Now, you might think, you know, oh, you know, gosh, when am I going to get rid of this? Well, here's a comforting thought for you. In this model, in the classical Theravadan model of, of awakening, there are four stages of enlightenment. Perhaps some of you are familiar. The, the stream enterer, the once returner, the non-returner, and the arhat, the fully enlightened being. At the third stage of enlightenment, which is pretty rarefied atmosphere, there's still the conceit of I am. There's still the comparing mind. So if you have it, it just means you're no higher than third stage. (laughs) And cut yourself a little bit of slack. This is something we all have to understand and come to terms with and actually as as a central point in practice understanding coming to terms with the judging mind and the comparing mind is not only um, something useful to do it can often be when you truly understand it and see through it can be the doorway to genuine liberation. This is from the Buddha. One who thinks oneself equal to others, or superior, or inferior, for that very reason disputes But one who is unmoved under those three conditions, for that person the notion equal, superior, and inferior do not exist. For one who is free from such views, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after views like these and philosophical opinions They wander about in the world, annoying people. (laughs) 
And you know who gets annoyed most? You. The one who's doing the judging. You might annoy others, but this is where the pain is experienced most of all. When for you does it arise? And we can talk about this both in terms of formal meditation practice or in our life as we go through our life. When does the comparing mind and the judging mind arise for you? You might just think somewhere in your distant past if it's ever arisen or maybe today. Where does it arise? We actually, uh, just for the fun of it, just taking a, a couple of um, couple of responses. If there's some brave people, and you're speaking for all of us, where does it arise for you? What what situations might might it might it uh, pop up? What is it? Politics. The comparing mind. You know, mm, I can relate to that one. Yeah. What about? your views versus somebody else, or how you hold yourself, any things that you judge or compare or somehow don't measure up? Or... Diet. I'm a vegetarian. Okay, your diet, your views. Uh-huh, yes. I'm a vegetarian, yes. Parenting. Oh, yeah, parenting, a big one, you know. Oh, everybody else is, oh, not yours. Yours is right. Everybody else is wrong. Yeah. Views and opinions. God, they are just completely ruining their kid if they would only, yeah. Any time that it, it falls back on you and implodes, the judging mind. Hmm, pretty liberated crowd. <laughs> Professionally at work. Professionally at work. It's so easy to compare ourselves to if there's a stellar coworker around. You know, absolutely. For me, when I uh, when I was I was growing up, you know, I, I never really um, did much with tools, and I I'm around a carpent, you know, somebody who builds a carpenter or stuff like that. It's like, oh my goodness, how do they do it? And I could easily get into that, you know, oh God, 10 thumbs and I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. Any other ways that, well, we don't have to get into, I have a lot to say. One one more. With family. With family, how how so? You know, your sisters and your brothers, and you know, just who's right about certain things. Who's right about certain things with sisters and brothers and family? We can compare, and you you may be caught that the Buddha did not just say superior with the conceit of I am, but both inferior and equal to. Equal to is also a problem. You know, it's, it's a little bit easier to handle because there's not that feeling of better or worse, but even equal to is creating a sense of me and other. And when you see through it, when you see through that delusion of self, which is really one of the central pointers of the teachings, that's where there's real freedom. But let's just for 
practical purposes talk about the ways that the comparing mind um, either elevates or, or diminishes ourselves. Happens on retreat all the time. You know, somebody was just saying at the, uh, at the break uh, where they, they heard uh, somebody saying, oh yeah, when I used to sit with, with so-and-so, and they would sit for long periods at a time, and you know, there, was a con- there can be a competition meditation. You know? <laughs> if they're there, I'm going to be there. You know? Oh my God, it's 11.30 and they're still awake in, on this retreat. <laughs> all right, I'll do it if they do it. You know? Or if you're, you're doing, if you've ever, how many people have done retreats here at, at Spirit Rock, intensive retreats, just a handful. If you, you probably have seen, maybe uh, if you've come on the land when there's retreats going on, sometimes people do walking meditation and it looks very, you know, very slow, you know, like people are, like Marcel Marceau, you know, the mind just barely moving. And it can be fun to go that slowly, but the mind can definitely get into comparing, like, you know, oh my God, look how slow they're going. (laughs) Or who do they think they are? (laughs) Miss Hotshot Walker, you know. (laughs) And I, uh, uh, on, on one retreat, I just I saw this tendency to compare it from my in my own mind, and I'd be doing the walking meditation. I you know some I could, it can be fun. You get into a, not fun. It can be really profound, and you kind of get into a slow gear, and you just really, uh, it's it can be so delicious to do slow walking at, at times. And it used to be I used to get really get into it. I'd be doing it. Nobody would be around. And I'd just be really enjoying myself, just lifting, moving, placing, and feeling all the sensations in the feet, the legs. Somebody else would come in, and all of a sudden I'd have a different reason and attitude in my walking. And I started, I use mental noting often in my practice, and I started to note my experience and be noting, you know, and somebody would be around all of a sudden, lifting, moving, looking good, lifting, <laughs> looking good, looking good. You know. I, when I was really honest, there was that subtle motivation inside. It happens so many different ways, especially in our culture, which is probably the most competitive culture that there is because the United States is number one, is the superpower. That's our identity uh, and that, that's our, our, our cultural psyche. You know, whether it's the, the country ethos or your city, I'm from the Bay Area. You're from LA, you know, you know, or, you know, whatever city it is, we all have our identities that we take really seriously. Or our football team. Oh, that was so painful. Um, or 
whatever it is, my body, you know, is, if it only was taller or slimmer or had a different shaped nose or different kind of hair, or my mind, you know, if I could only be a little bit wittier and quicker and or more fun or less boring or if they were only less boring, or, you know, we do it. You know, pretty continuously. Even our shortcomings, we can take pride in our shortcomings. I remember go, going to cut when I was in college, and I, I went in the, uh, into college in the 60s, and I, I really got into a, a big existential period, you know, reading Camus and Sartre and, 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 and how deep they were. And I, as some people, I think also uh, like me would do, would be, you know, if you're really messed up, you're deep, you know. <laughs> I, I'm deeper than you because I am completely messed up and neurotic, you know. And you can wear that even like a, like a badge, you know. Oh, they're just having fun, you know, how shallow they must be, you know. Now I teach about joy, so I kind of switched, switched that a bit, but... Anyway, it's so easy to get into the comparing mind. And even in the Dharma seat, you know, it's not that you finish that once you take the Dharma seat. I, when I first started teaching, I started teaching retreats in the uh, early 80s with team teaching, like the retreats that we do up, up here. My first retreat, my big retreat down at uh, Yucca Valley, where we still hold retreats every every spring. Um, it was like '82, I think, or so, and uh, maybe '83. And I would be be like you know 150 people, 175 people. Jack Cornfield would give a talk and just weave a spell and mesmerize everybody. Joseph Goldstein, who's my main teacher, just clear as a bell, brilliant, deep, and wise, blow everyone's mind. You know, Sharon Salzberg would give a talk, and tears would come as she shared about loving kindness and metta. You know, and then I had to go up and give a talk. You know? And I knew if I was in the audience, I'd be saying, "Get that guy down and get Goldstein back up there." It was really painful. And over the years, you know, it's one of the great things in, in, in teaching with, with others, especially when they're good friends, like I, I, I am, like I teach every February with my, my friends up there, uh, Guy Armstrong and Sally Armstrong and Carol Wilson. And uh, Pascal Auclair is with us this year. He's going to be speaking next Monday. He's really good, by the way. Um, is that you see that it can come out so many different ways out of people's uh, mouths and hearts. And still, taking the Dharma seat, you're subject to that. I want to read to you, actually. I love this passage. I'm, I'm going to read. i get to it. This is from Ajahn Sumedho, who's one of the, the most well-respected um, Dharma teachers, who was Jack. Cornfield's mentor when, uh, when Jack first came and studied with Ajahn Chah. He was like his, his older brother. Um, and uh, the, 
the most senior of Theravadan uh, Western monks. He says, when I was young, I was very self-conscious. To say something in public was absolutely terrifying for me. Even when I was in the Navy, just having to raise my voice to say, aye, aye, sir, in public, in roll call, would have me shaking because of self-consciousness. Then I became a school teacher. Teaching eight or nine-year-old Chinese kids in northern Borneo for a couple of years, that wasn't such a threat. But then becoming a monk in Thailand and eventually having to give talks to Thai people in Thai, all this self-consciousness became apparent. The highs you get when you'd felt you'd given a good talk and everybody says, you're really good, Sumedho. You can give good Dhamma. Then sometimes I'd give a really stupid talk and think, I don't want to give another talk ever again. I didn't become a monk to give talks. But the idea was to keep watching this. Ajahn Chah would always encourage me to keep aware of the pride, the conceit, the embarrassment, and the self-consciousness that I'd feel. And fortunately, in Thailand, the people are such that they're, they're just grateful for a monk giving a talk. Even if it's not a very good talk, it doesn't seem to upset them very much. They still seem quite grateful about it. So that made it a bit easier. One time at a katina katina ceremony where we had to sit up all night, Ajahn Chah said, Sumedho, you have to give a talk for three hours tonight. And up till that time, I'd only talked for half an hour. That was a strain, but three hours, and he knew. With Ajahn Chah, I always felt that if he said something, I'd do it. So I sat up on the high seat and talked for three hours. I had to sit there and watch people get up and leave. I had to sit there and watch people just lie down on the floor and sleep in front of me. And at the end of the three hours, there were still a few polite old ladies left sitting there. Now, Ajahn Chah wasn't saying, okay, Sumedha, go in there and bowl them over with some scintillating stuff, entertain them, really sock it to them. I began to realize that what he wanted me to do was to be able to look at this self-consciousness, the posing, the pride, the conceit, the grumbling, the lazy, the not wanting to be bothered, the wanting to please, the wanting to entertain, the wanting to get approval. All these have come up during these talks of all these years that I've been teaching. But the meditation is one in which more and more one feels a real understanding of the suffering of a self-view. And then through that insight, one realizes the abiding in emptiness. The conceit of I am, this self-view, the comparing mind... These high standards we either set by looking at others outside or remembering when we were more together or had a a, a peak moment. It's so painful. And it's basically rooted, I believe, in fear. The fear of not being enough of not being complete, just as you are. This is really painful. But it is a complete misperception that you are not enough. And the the teaching is one 
seeing more and more that you are already whole. But there's so much conditioning that needs to be understood, held with compassion, processed. And it is a practice of patience over time. If you knew how many people come to retreats in there, you know, when when we do the retreats, if you haven't been in that setting, you check in every uh, couple of days for about 15 minutes to share your process. And we support the people going through that process over whether it's a week or a month or two months. And how many people come in with the basic obstacle of not being enough? I'd say it's, oh, about 90, 95%. That's probably a conservative estimate. And then... Over time, it's not that you're stuck there for good, but generally when people first start practicing, it's, it's a rare person that comes and says, I'm beautiful just as I am, so happy to be here and meditate and share my, my love with the world. For most of us, there is this feeling of self-judgment or unworthiness to some extent, one, one way or another. On one retreat, I was sitting with, um, every fall there's this three-month fall retreat. And on one retreat, um, at the end, this was in 1979, at the end of the three-month retreat, um, or towards the end, the Dalai Lama came and visited the retreat. It's a great way to end a retreat. Okay? And if you've never seen the Dalai Lama, I highly recommend. He is a high being, right? So he's giving, he's having some uh, Q&A and somebody raised their hand and said, uh, Your Holiness, uh, what, um, what do you advise in dealing um, with unworthiness? And the translator translated to, um, to the Dalai Lama, that concept of unworthiness, but it, it didn't sink in at first. It took a little while for him to really understand the concept. And he went back and forth and back and forth, and then he kind of got it, oh, unworthiness, so oh, that you don't feel like you're enough. And then he looked at this person and he said, you're wrong, you're absolutely wrong. You imagine the Dalai Lama telling you that after two and a half months of sitting, you know. <laughs> But he said it with, with deep compassion, you're wrong. And what I got from it, he went on to say, what makes you think that everything else is part of the fabric of the universe and somehow you don't belong, that you're not good enough? You're wrong. I have sometimes thought, well, maybe if you were told from the time you're one and a half that you are the embodiment of the bodhisattva of infinite compassion, you've got some good self-esteem. Right? But in our, our culture, the competitive culture is often uh, one where you know, that individuality uh, takes precedence over just everyone belonging. 
this not being good enough, I came across a, a line in um, uh, is it The Course in Miracles that goes something like, believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. Believing in your littleness is arrogant because it's preferring your own opinion to God's. How could you not be good enough? You were born into this world, life manifesting through this form as you, which has never been here before, in its own unique way, that configuration is a perfect manifestation of life. It's like if you go out into the forest and there's all kinds of trees. There's tall trees and there's small trees and there's trees that have real character with lots of gnarls and and other trees that are uh, that are young and vibrant. Do you go and say, gee, if only that gnarly tree was a little straighter, it would be a better tree. No, you don't do that. Every tree has its own perfection. But when it comes to us, it's a different story. So the first practice is seeing, understanding in the teachings who you really are and how this dilemma gets created, this conceit of I am. In, uh, in the teachings, and I'm, I'm sure Jack has, or others have, or Mark have, have talked about this from time to time, this human form, this this being called you with a name is really a mind-body process that is comprised in the classical teachings of five different components, what are called the five khandas or skandhas, that include form, this body, and the four others being mental components, Feeling, what the mind can do, feeling tone that is in every, exp- in every moment there is either a pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral experience. That's called feeling or Vedana. Perception, another mental uh, component where you know, oh, this is bell, this is paper, this is person, this is hand, where the mind recognizes and categorizes experience, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, all the thoughts and feelings that come out of this amazing thing we call the mind. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. There's a knowing quality that is simply aware that you can't even turn off if you tried. Try to not be aware of my voice and my words. See if that's possible. Okay, turn it off. Don't be aware. You can't, right? It just, 
it just does its thing. Awareness is happening all the time. So that's who we are. Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness that are called the five khandas or skandhas or aggregates is the English word, the five aggregates. And what, where the judging mind gets activated is particularly that aggregate of perception that in the recognition, it's like you've got a memory bank that classifies things. Oh, there, that is, uh, that is um, a man. Oh, that's a handsome man. Oh, that's uh, not as handsome man. Oh, that's a whatever. You and other. This is me and that's them. And we have this very deeply ingrained tendency to, to see how we compare with others and how this moment compares with, with another moment. Ring the bell. Oh, that's a nice sound. Oh, that's, I don't like that sound as much. Oh, that's nice again. It just happens, it gets activated. And of course, depending upon your conditioning, you might like you know, heavy metal or whatever it is, that it's not that there's an absolute objective truth to all of this, but it has a lot to do with, has everything to do with our conditioning. So when we get caught in that comparing then we start missing the fact that we are just this mind-body process that is not as solid as we think. So we think. So we might think, you know, oh, I'm um, I'm so calm because you're having a calm day, you know. Or I'm just so out there and frenetic and pathetic because I'm all over the place and because that's what's coming through in that moment. And we take personally our experience. Just think, for instance, how many thoughts you've had today? How many thoughts have you had? Thousands, 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 maybe millions. Which one of them could you say is you? Oh, I'm that thought. They're just all coming through on their own. How many different moods have you had today? Which one could you say is the real you? It's all just flowing in and out. How many sensations have you had today? Countless, countless. Which one could you say is you? Rather to see that you are a mind-body process that life is expressing itself through. This is what the meditation directly points to. And in that, then there's no comparing because you're a continually changing experience. As an example, just to, um, to point to this seeing through the solidity of self, just try this. Close your eyes for a moment. And 
Usually we think of ourselves as a noun, as some body, as some person, some thing, body called me. Now, instead of thinking of yourself as a noun, for just a few moments, see what it's like to relate to yourself as a verb as a field of activity, sensations, thoughts, feelings, just all moving through this form called you. You are a verb. Just hang out with that for a moment. Maybe feel life move through you for just a few moments. Do you notice the difference between me, it's me, or it's just life? If and if that if you didn't connect with that or relate to it, just it's okay, let it, let it go. But as soon as you start seeing the flow of life, this sense of separate self starts to be seen through. And one way you can start to relate to it is that here is life talking through this body and mind and mouth, saying what it says, and it's hitting those expressions of life, and it's really life just talking to itself through these forms. Not to deny the fact that there's this form, and if I, get, if I pinch this, you, I, I feel it and you don't, but to see a deeper level reality where that's just a relative level, and there's no, in this form, there's no unchanging abiding entity to whom life is happening, that life is happening through this form. That, the more you see that, the more you see that rather than comparing, you are this um, continual process in a perfect expression, a unique expression of life. And And the more you see that, what happens is you, um, you see that something is shining through you, what Ajahn Sumedho calls the shining through of the divine, where beyond this way that we hold ourselves, there's something very mysterious that moves through us. Okay, that might not address the whole problem though how to deal with this judging and comparing mind. And I want to share with you a few strategies, practices that I find helpful in working with it. The first is to see when you get caught in that comparing that you are not alone This is just a trick that the mind plays 
on most everybody, like I said, even up to third stage of enlightenment, that this is just a habit of mind for some of us more deeply ingrained, very deeply ingrained, but for most of us it's there. And when you see the conditioning that goes into believing this sense of self or judging ourselves for not being enough, instead of bringing more judgment to that dilemma, I can't believe I get caught up in so much self-judgment. You know, God, oh, I just did it again. When am I going to stop judging myself? Right? And again and again and again. There's no way out of that. So to really see through the conditioning and instead have some great compassion for that habit of mind. Really a heart of forgiveness and seeing it's just part of being human. On one retreat, it's actually, uh, might have been that same, that same first retreat and where I really, no, it was the second retreat in 79, that same uh, one that the Dalai Lama visited. I was doing, like I said before, the walking meditation, going really slowly. And I was all by myself and really getting into it. And I decided this one particular period, since I was all alone, nobody around, I wanted to see how slowly I could go, just for the fun of it. And in, in this retreat, somebody comes into the walking room. It was actually a gymnasium, um, converted gymnasium, who had just come from the outside because in those early years they tacked on a two-week retreat at the very end of a three-month course. They, they gave up on that idea after a while because you can really feel the difference in the energy. So there, are, and you could feel this person just was going on a very different pace than I was. And there, but I wasn't going to stop my game, just so I just kept on lifting, moving, and I knew it was going to look really bizarre. And after about two minutes, this person kind of going back and forth, they bolted out of the gym in what I was sure was you know, the comparing in the mind. And the thought occurred to me, wow, I really blew her mind. She must think I'm a great yogi. <laughs> and the next thought, because I saw it so clearly, was it was like I opened up to this, this dungeon of ego and presentation and look at me and oh my God, you know, it's disgusting. <laughs> and I became like a caged tiger, actually. I stopped the slow walking and I was going back and forth and saying, God, I've been doing this for two months and there's all this ego and I'll never get rid of it. And who am I kidding? And I'm just a phony and all of this. I did that for about 10 minutes. And then the thought occurred to me, the millions and millions of times 
that I had that kind of thought, but not caught it because I wasn't as clear and present for it. And by then, I, I had believed in lifetimes. And when the thought of having millions of lifetimes, having billions of thoughts like this, it was just mind-boggling. And in a moment, it occurred to me, did I think that in two and a half months, I would undo that habit of all that practicing of ego? And what happened, it was a very dramatic moment in, in my life, this wave of deep, genuine compassion came over me, like saying, realizing, you are trying so hard, you're being so sincere here, and of course this is going to take time. That was much more valuable than seeing how slowly I could go. And it really shifted for just a moment where you don't have to blame yourself for the thoughts and the habits of mind that come through. Everything changes when you can bring some forgiveness and compassionate understanding to that conditioning that we're up against. Here's a, a practice that I've done for that I share with people that for about two years was my main practice in working with the judging mind, the comparing mind. Just uh, try this. Close your eyes. And just imagine there is um, there's a, a judging thought that you see. Oh, I'm not good enough. Or, you know, they're not good enough. Or, and you realize, oh, there's judging in the mind. However, it's easy to get into Oh, judging, judging. Instead, just try this. Imagine that you see the judging thought, but this time you have a different way of relating to it. I'd like you to take your hand and put it on your cheek. And as if you were the kindest, compassionate, being, wise being, the Buddha or Kuan Yin, as you caress your cheek, just silently say in the kindest voice, oh, judging, judging, like it's okay, judging. And let yourself feel the tenderness. Okay, you can open your eyes. Could you feel that? That's how you want to notice the judging mind. And that was my, my main practice for about two years when I saw how completely prevalent it was. And I didn't do this every time, it, but I would do it when I'd forget. I could just, you start to use that volume in, the, in, the, in your mind, saying it in the kindest voice, and when you forget, either I'd put my hand on my cheek or put my hand on my heart and just feel the tenderness to remind, viscerally remind, that's how the most skillful practice is in in dealing with that judging. Then every time you find yourself comparing or judging, instead of getting deeper in the hole, becomes an opportunity to practice compassion. And I'm happy to say that the judging in my mind 
is very different than 30 years ago. It can still be there, you know, press the button, I can be back in third grade and feeling young or insecure, but what's very different is it doesn't last very long. It's just an old pattern, oh yeah, there that is, and I, I open to a different reality. It's okay, it's just the mind doing its thing. So this is the first strategy, real forgiveness and kindness and compassion with the conditioning that we're up against. Something else, another practice strategy, is seeing the emptiness of those thoughts. Thoughts are as real as we believe them to be or as empty as we see them to be. Joseph Goldstein, my my teacher, has a very simple, effective instruction. He says, if you're sitting in a room full of people and you're all meditating and you notice these thoughts that, that are bothering you, just imagine they're coming from the person behind you. <laughs> For all intents and purposes, they are. You don't invite those. You don't say, gee, I could go for some real self-doubt right now. Yeah. It just comes on its own. How about some rage? I could go for, yeah, I, I need some rage. You know, Your thoughts, your mind is completely out of control, which might seem like very humbling bad news. It's great news. It's great news to see that your mind is out of your control. Why? Because then you don't have to blame yourself for what comes through. It's just coming through on its own. And you don't have to get rid of anything, just seeing how empty those thoughts are. They come out of nowhere and they go back to nowhere if you don't get hooked and bite the bait. Another strategy to work with them is having a sense of humor. That's one of the things that does happen. The more you take a look at your mind, if you ever have a chance to to go up and and do a retreat, how out of control it is, at some point you just either have to scream or laugh at the absurdity of it. I recommend laughing. Wow. And then when you see, wow, look at the mind do its thing then instead of it being, oh, look at my mind, it's, oh, look at the mind. That's a huge shift, not taking it personally when you can be light around it. Another strategy, it's almost time, is mm, acting as if you're enough. Just even pretending, imagining what it would be like to be okay just how you are. Now, one way to do this is uh, using the loving-kindness practice. And I'd like to share with you the loving-kindness metta practice, probably most of you are familiar with, but metta towards yourself in a slightly different way than it's usually done. You know, you, the, the, you, you practice first 
trying to bring kindness to yourself. May I be safe from harm. May I be happy. May I be healthy. May I have ease of being. I was on a retreat where I was doing intensive metta 24-7 and about a week of the six-week period first was towards myself. And after about, oh, three days, I was, it was okay. I wasn't beating myself up, but it wasn't really juicy and rich. I wasn't head over heels in love. And then the thought occurred to me of somebody who really loved me. And I knew this person really loved me. And I thought, gosh, this would be so easy if I could just see what they see. And then I thought, well, what do they see anyway? Why do they love me? And then I hit, that's when I hit upon this variation of metta practice, which I want to share with you, that... Um, again, was a very dramatic, powerful moment in my life. So I'd like you to just for a moment close your eyes and um, bring someone to mind who you have a really sweet, loving connection with. It can be a, a friend, it can be a relative, it can be a child, it can be a pet. It doesn't matter. Just somebody that you share a really warm, loving connection. And imagine they're right here with you and feel the energy that you share when you're together. That sweet flow that's unique when the two of you are with each other. Now for a moment, just imagine your consciousness inhabiting their reality for a few moments and see through their eyes or just imagine who they see when they're with their friend that they just enjoy so much being with. Who do they see? What touches them about you? Might be your goodness or your playfulness or your intelligence or creativity. Take it all in and see if this person is worthy of kindness and love and okay just the way they are. And you might just relax into that and send yourself some love from that vantage point. Oh, may you really be happy. May you see all the goodness that you are. And then let your consciousness come back into your own body and stay connected and just see what others see, what shines through, whether or not you realize it. You're complete just the way you are. And the more you can practice that, the more everybody gets to see it. Okay, you can open your eyes. If you, let me ask you, if you met somebody who really got you, who really understood you, who, who had, who got your jokes, who had your, had similar tastes and really understood your perspective and your hopes and your fears, how would you feel about meeting someone like that? 
Wouldn't you be delighted? There's one person that gets every joke that goes through your head. (laughs) Who really understands your hopes and your fears. Unfortunately, they're right inside your own body. But if you met yourself from the outside, you'd probably be saying, where have you been all my life? (laughs) Why not get to know who you really are? And then instead of needing validation from the outside, am I okay, am I okay, or I'm better or worse, just see, you're perfect just who you are. And when you, the more you see that, the more you see that the comparing mind is really missing the point. It's just a misperception of reality. Life has never expressed itself the way it has is through you. And it's time to see through that. So I'll just end with this beautiful poem that I love about this dilemma and possibilities by my favorite poet named Dana Falds. This is her poem, Awakening Now. You can Google it too if you say, oh, I need a copy. Why wait for your awakening? The moment your eyes are open, Seize the day. Would you hold back when the beloved beckons? Would you deliver your litany of sins like a child's collection of seashells, prized and labeled? No, I can't step across the threshold, you say, eyes downcast. I'm not worthy. I'm afraid. My motives aren't pure. I'm not perfect, and surely I haven't practiced nearly enough. My meditation isn't deep, and my prayers are sometimes insincere. I still chew my fingernails, and the refrigerator isn't clean. (laughs) Do you value your reasons for staying small more than the light shining through the open door? Forgive yourself. Now is the only time you have to be whole. Now is the sole moment that exists to live in the light of your true self. Perfection is not a prerequisite for anything but pain. Please, oh please, don't continue to believe in your disbelief. This is the day of your awakening. So, thank you for your attention. May you wake up to who you really are and let the whole world enjoy what you've been gifted with. So, hope we meet again in the Dharma Trail. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.